0: Did you know that the average person living in the EU consumes around 25 kilograms of fish or seafood per year, which is actually four kilograms more than the rest of the world? And in the UK alone, the second largest area of farm animal production after chicken is the fish industry. So it's fair to say that we love eating fish. And for many of us, it's a key component of a healthy diet, but it's still a sector which is fraught with challenges and misconceptions. In this episode of the Food Fight podcast with me, Matt Eastland, we're going to be looking at some of the efforts to turn the fish industry into a more sustainable and planet-conscious arena. And to do this, my guests today are both bringing technology-led approaches to this age-old industry. Our first guest is entrepreneur, CEO, and co-founder of Safety Net Technologies, Dan Watson. Safety Net Technologies are helping farmers catch more specific types of fish with their precision fishing tech and their goal is to make our oceans more sustainable by using innovations to help reduce bycatch. Dan, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks Matt, nice to be here. Thanks very much. And we are also joined by another fab entrepreneur, Tony Chen, who is CEO and co-founder of Manolin. Manolin is an online platform which uses different data points to monitor and improve the health of fish farms around Norway, helping farmers measure performance so they can make better decisions. Tony, thanks also for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great stuff, thanks guys. So I'd just like to start by setting the scene. Why is there such an urgent need for us to look at fish farming with fresh eyes and fresh ideas? And I suppose maybe putting it more simply, what are the big problems with traditional fishing? Dan, why don't you take us away?
1: Yeah, thanks Matt. So I think, I guess we work in the traditional fishery space, right? So we go out, with our customers on fishing vessels and deploy technology into what you would consider to be traditional fishing gears, trawls, nets, pots, traps, lots of different things, that have had a range of problems with them over the years. So that could be the bycatch that you mentioned, so catch of the wrong species, whether they're sort of the wrong, economically not incentivized to capture them, or they're too small, or they're endangered, a bunch of different reasons you don't want these things in your gear. So that's a big problem, the lack of selectivity. There are issues around how fisheries are managed as well. Like, do we know where the fishing vessels are going? Do we know how much they're catching? How, is there transparency in that supply chain? Like, how do you actually manage that too in a way that's equitable and, and people can can understand what they're getting and where it's coming from and that we're doing it within the sort of the bounds of the resources that we have access to? So those are two fairly significant ones. There are lots of other ones as well, but I think those are
0: the ones that we've aimed to address mainly at SafetyNet. Okay, thanks, Dan. And Tony, I mean,
2: I guess there's a big issue around fish welfare as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, from our side, I think compared to Dan, I think together we represent the entire seafood industry, kind of the wild captures as well as the farming side. And on the farming side, I mean, you're completely correct. Animal welfare is obviously a big one, making sure that you're raising fish in a healthy way. But I think additionally, from the farming standpoint, resource usage and then environmental impact are two other big ones that we try to keep in mind. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. That's really useful. And then just kind of looking at the fishing
0: industry, you know, in its broadest sense, do you kind of get the feeling that we've maybe simply outgrown an old industry? Or do you think there's space for, you know, for traditional fishing and and what you guys are doing to coexist together?
2: No, I mean, I think when you look at overall seafood, it's forecasting into the future, I think both wild captures and farmed fish are going to be part of the seafood equation. I mean, what got us into this industry, if you look at some of these curves, we crossed this threshold at the global level back in, I think about 2015, where half the world's seafood is farmed as far as what has been consumed versus what is wild captured. And wild capture rates have largely leveled off over the last kind of 20 to 30 years, but farmed has continued to grow. So in our forecast and projections, when you look at seafood, farming is going to become a bigger piece of the picture but i don't necessarily see that meaning wild capture fisheries aren't going to exist i think it's also a very big part of the equation it's going to be a balance between both sides okay and dan what do you reckon
1: yeah i think if you look at wild capture right it's basically the last hunting that we do on this planet right going after species rather than farming them in in captivity and the ocean does a tremendous amount in terms of like providing that resource because it does a lot essentially for us, right, if we don't abuse it. If you look at how aquacultures has had to adapt to bring fish into captivity, be able to maintain raising them and getting like sufficient biomass out and stuff, all the different things that have to go into it. The ocean does a lot of that for us, and then we go out and try and bring it back. But I think I completely agree with Tony here. Like if it, Wild capture is, is going to stick around. It may even decline slightly as consumers become more interested in like very specific types of stocks and making sure that sort of sustainable element is there. And we're going to have to find that balance to achieve and then retain abundance in stocks because we've seen a lot crashing, right? But there are some that are very well managed and we've seen that they will last into the future. So I think that the appetite will change. I think they'll always be important. The population is growing as well, like incredibly fast. And we still like over a fifth of the world's population relies on fish as primary protein. So whether that's coming from aquaculture, wild capture or cell based approaches, which, you know, obviously are developing too. I think there are three sides of or maybe more sides of a shape that work together to achieve that need
0: okay thanks and you mentioned the the term aquaculture and you know we obviously talk about this a lot but for the the uninitiated how would you define aquaculture aquaculture i think it's i mean honestly it's, it's things
1: that grow in a water body right like it it's it's a very broad term which is used differently by different people so you could use it for the fish that's grown in court as well capture you could grow it for fish that's caught, uh, grown in captivity you could even use it in terms of like seaweed and things and kelp that are grown in a water body as well right like in oysters and bivalves That's how it was sort of used as a catch-all in the past, excuse the pun. But now I think we are seeing these different verticals, right? Fish farming versus aquaculture. We've got wild capture. We've got like multitrophic stuff. We've got mariculture, which is like the growing of sea vegetables. So I think we're having to derive a more precise language to encompass things that previously weren't really in the public focus, but now are being discussed in fora where you need to know what you're talking about rather than just lumping it all together. as one big thing.
0: Why don't we have a chat about exactly what you both do in your company? So Dan, if it's okay, I'll stay with you on this one. So SafetyNet's aim is to make fishermen's lives easier, you say, and commercial fishing more sustainable. So you've started with an amazing piece of tech called Pisces, which incorporates LEDs, right? So firstly what is it exactly and how on earth did you just suddenly decide or find LED lights and fish this just kind of works how did that all come about
1: I think I think like most of the interesting innovations that you see they're building on really robust and good science right so I didn't wake up in one morning and be like you know what fish light fish light. light." it was
0: (laughs) I did wonder yeah no
1: it wasn't just like divine inspiration it was um it was part of my final year project at uni. So it was looking at the problem and taking a sort of user-centered design approach to it and being like, where are the real bottlenecks here? Where are the issues that mean we're not catching the right fish? Who's done work on finding ways of making fishing more selective that could be easy to install, right? So I think you mentioned making fishermen's lives easier. I mean, at the starting point of safety net, when it first sort of started going to market, it was like, we're doing sustainable technology. Everyone should have this because they just should, right? It's good. Like everyone is going to buy this because it does the world of good. And then that naivety wears off very quickly. And you realize that the bottom line is what everyone cares about. And actually Mm -hmm. the bottom line can encompass both financial prosperity, but also quality of life and welfare. And so we've really had to find ways to marry up. Both of those things, right? Like, okay, we're protecting the bottom line and we can show you the value proposition and the business case behind it. And as a consequence, we achieve our sustainability goals. And you do too. It may not be the top of your list, but it's definitely on your list as a fisherman. And so we can achieve both these things together. The light side of things was really looking at how fish respond to those signals, right? So due to whatever evolutionary track, like or visual ability to perceive different lights because of where they live in the water column or the different habitats they live in. And then the behavioural response, like I've seen this thing and do I want to go towards it and try and eat it or do I want to swim away from it? Because I'm like, what the hell is that? So you can start to use those as cues in different fishing activities. And as a, a brief example, in pollock fishing nets, for instance, right, you're catching like millions of pollock maybe, but you're also catching salmon. And the salmon are much better swimmers than pollock. So if you show them something up in the net that like they might be interested in, they can swim towards these things and then try and swim out through an escape panel because... They're like, oh, cool, an exit, whereas the pollock can't. So it's, it's playing on these different factors to achieve the selectivity goal that you're aiming for in the end.
0: That's amazing. So am I right in thinking that the different types of lights, light intensity, light colour kind of attracts and repels different species of fish? Is that sort of how it works?
1: Yeah, I mean that's the way that we explain it. I think there is a tremendous amount of science that goes into it. And like of our course. trials are pretty long and, and pretty detailed. I think if I were to say it like that, our science lead would <laughs> probably slap me. I don't obviously not physical <laughs> violence, but he wouldn't be pleased. But yeah, essentially yes, that's what we're
0: aiming to achieve. Amazing. Well, wow. incredible. And I know you've got loads of other tech under the under the bonnet as well, but we'll talk about that hopefully. Um Tony, so you're more focused on fish farms rather than open water fishing. I believe that's right. And you're also focusing on Norway as like the main area. And I think I've seen this written down that Norway is the Silicon Valley of fish farming, which is absolutely cool. So why salmon farming? Why the big focus?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, as far as our company, our focus is building predictive models to help farmers act sooner. And we target a lot of our models around disease and health factors for the fish. What we recognized about Norway and why it's considered the Silicon Valley of kind of aquaculture, we actually started our business within oysters. So tracking bivalves, helping farmers manage inventory. In order to build a lot of predictive models, you need historical data to base a lot of these factors on. And what we recognized was when you look at Norway, it's much more technology advanced when it comes to aquaculture. We were dealing with smallholder fishermen in the States, you know, or smallholder farmers, you know, dealing with cages, a lot of manual labor. You go to Norway and you find these farms are, one, large scale. They have tons of sensors. Every single farm has has a camera underneath the water. They've used computer software for the last 30 years to manage inventory and collect data. You just don't have this wealth of information anywhere else. I mean, additionally, I think one of the things we recognize, we spent a lot of time in the U.S. coastline driving from farm to farm. So you would drive hours to go from one farm to another. You find in Norway, there's a city called Bergen that that we are headquartered in that has a ton of fish farming companies, a ton of research, a ton of the industry from the supply side. It's really one place where you can go where everybody knows about fish. I mean, I was going from city to city on the coastline asking if anyone knew anything about oyster farming or fish farming or Getting any sort of information you could, whereas in Bergen, pretty much everybody knows the industry. It was just a really good place to iterate and kind of learn from.
0: Okay, great. And so you're sort of welcome with open arms in Norway by the sounds of it. Can you just sort of paint a picture for us? Because I, I imagine the scale of these things are massive. So what does like a typical fish farm look like today? So if you you know you're going out with your tech and, you know, with the farmers, can you give us an idea of what it actually looks like?
2: Yeah. So from our side, we have a software platform that gives farmers alerts and warnings and analytics. And the main things that we focus on are alerts over when a disease risk is increasing, right. when they've seen kind of numbers in their farms where mortality rates are starting to climb. And then we give reports over the products that they use. So how their feed is performing, how their smolts are performing, how the pharmaceutical products they've chosen have performed out in the field. When you look at these farms, so for Norway, for example, there's over a little over A thousand sites. Each site has roughly eight to 12 cages, and each one of these cages are fairly large, about 50 meters in diameter and about 200 feet deep, essentially, where each cage has about 100,000 fish. And when you look at kind of global scale of salmon farming, there's roughly 2,000 sites around the world kind of spread out in various countries, Canada, Chile, Scotland, and Norway. But that's the typical picture that we see. When you look at Norway, a lot of what happens from the management in the farms doesn't happen just on site so people take boats they go out to the barges they'll spend a couple days there but most of these companies you know have home bases far away from the sites that they actually farm at this point
0: okay so they're huge scale and i obviously you know there's been a lot about this in the media but obviously disease is a thing right and i know that that's something that you're particularly interested in combating so what kind of diseases are we talking about and and how does your
2: data-led approach how does it help that yeah so when you're talking about diseases there's a couple different that ones you are tracking whether it's viral diseases or parasites and then there's diseases that are specific to farmed animals and then there's others such as sea lice which impact wild stocks and, and and can impact other species as well so what we do in my background i actually came out of college with a degree in computer science ended up working at the us government and was tracking disease data for for human health um, right. but what we saw was when you look at aquaculture, these diseases need to be tracked. They have a significant, again, bottom line impact for the farmers, but they also have an impact on the overall environment. So being able to act sooner, having the right warnings is extremely critical to improve kind of the quality of the animals we are raising. And I think one of the things that we recognized was compared to other types of farming and you know, even in human health, you really can't quarantine any of these disease issues. You really gotta get ahead of it. In the open ocean, currents can move and and, and and diseases move from farm to farm fairly quickly. So being able to act sooner ahead of it is really important if we want to make this industry get a lot better and improve. Wow, well,
0: I had no idea that they those sorts of things spread so easily through water. Again, I'm learning loads. So thank you. Yeah. And um, when we think of the fishing industry, you know, you've got this sort of traditional, hardworking fishermen. You know, battling the waves, putting in hours of manual intensive labor. You know, it's an industry which is obviously steeped in tradition. And you've both spent years immersing yourself with those fishermen and fish farmers. So you've been able to see, obviously, firsthand the challenges that they're facing. So, you know, just thinking about the tech that you've got, so how have you designed? your technology to fit into this existing industry and not be at odds with it I mean it's sort of similar we spoke about how is the traditional industry going to die out but you seem to be saying actually this is complementary so how is your technology now fitting into this space
1: yeah I mean all those points that you raise are completely true right you go out on a fishing vessel and you're lucky if you're standing anything less than 45 degrees for some of it and like feeling seasick you've got heavy gloves on there's water crashing over you there's fish guts on your arms like it's it's uh it's not it's not an easy industry it's bloody hard work that people do and um yeah a lot of respect for people who keep going out there and doing it so we have spent time i personally have spent time like most of our if all of our engineering team and others on our team have spent time at sea on fishing vessels right so right. we have fishermen on our advisory board we have a lot of customers we get customer feedback from now through our customer success manager and really it's kind of an iterative process because even if fishing crews treat your device as well the ocean doesn't care the ocean tries to eat everything like tony if you've you've seen the hardware and aquaculture stuff like just corrosion impact and then even sea creatures attacking it for some reason sometimes like it's not a set like a very caring place so <laughs> it has to be built to withstand all of that and it still has to be usable by humans which is nuts. So we do a lot of wireless technology. You know, we don't want any of our stuff opened up because if you do, everything gets in and then it breaks. So no battery changes, no pushing buttons. It's all wireless and it's all depth rated and pressure rated tested and stuff. So that's the challenge. Like, and how do you do that with gloves at the end of a long day when you're knackered? Because anything that you build that, that actually gets in the way of this work that you're doing, which is already hard, it's just a pain, right? You're you're not going to use it again and nobody yeah. achieves their goals in that way. So the two incentives are, or rather one incentive is the the bottom line, just make things easier to achieve the goals that are being increasingly handed down from top-down management organizations and actually allow people to keep fishing. The other is just don't get in the way. Like don't become more of a mental or physical burden for someone to implement what you're doing. Like build stuff that you fit and forget, it does the job. You maybe have to change it once every few weeks. Because otherwise, if you're trying to like change batteries every single time or charge them up or whatever, it, it just becomes a huge burden. Mm. So we've tried to be as sympathetic to the needs of our end users as possible by actually going out there and experiencing them too. And I think that's led into our design process.
0: So I was going to ask you about that, actually. It's this you know, traditional industry versus something which is obviously very high tech. Have you found that f- fishermen are embracing your technology without too much resistance or are they sceptical at first?
1: Very skeptical. And understandably yeah. so. I mean the fishing industry's been to use unfair language under attack for since it started, right? Depending on your point of view. There's always been people challenging it, right? To say, what are you doing? Why are you doing it like this? Why aren't you doing this? And I think that grinds people down after a while. So we us coming in as like a bunch of students who were like, We can fix this for you, this thing you've been trying to fix for 30 <laughs> yeah, years. That's right. Like with our amazing shiny flashing light technology, like give us some money understandably they're like sorry what (laughs) get off my boat but we persisted i mean we've been doing this for like 12 years now right like interacting with the industry making relationships and it takes time and you get there eventually and now with our new products people are like cool i'll try it chuck it over i'll take it out and like i can give you some real advice we listen we implement and we build that trust we also have people on the team who've been in the fishing industry which is like just it opens all the doors immediately and you're, you're able to get the time of day from people so the empathy comes from experience and from people on our team who've been through it and the relationships come from working really hard to make sure we listen and value that feedback. Yeah, and I think just to the point about like traditional industry, yeah, that it is, you know, and it is slow and it's expensive to do these things. And with the technology we produce, we call ourselves the Android of the fishing sector, because if you look at the apples where people are charging like a million dollars for a camera unit that goes on these vessels, it's bloody expensive, but it's still crap. Like it still isn't easy to use and doesn't do a great job under the water. It does enough, right? So we're trying to shift that paradigm from like technology that's good enough and affordable, but is a joy to use, which is crazy in a, an industry where your boat might be tipping under your feet,
0: right? But right. we're trying. Good stuff. Thanks, Dad. And Tony, I guess... Same kind of question to you, but I get the impression based on what you're saying about Norway and how high tech it is. I mean, have you found that this has been quite straightforward for you in terms of going in and, you know, getting people to use your technology and all those sorts of things or not?
2: It's actually not. I mean, I I think I would, I I really connected with a lot of what Dan kind of mentioned as far as the challenges and the skepticism. I mean, I think we've seen it just the same. And just because it's a high tech industry doesn't mean that analytics and predictive technologies is something that gets adopted very quickly. I mean, analogy I have very close is my wife is a pediatrician. She's a doctor. And I've asked him, you know, healthcare facilities collect a ton of data. Do you guys use it? Are you guys willing to adopt, you know, machine learning and AI? Absolutely not. That's not how we do things. It can't be better. So it's just because an industry is high tech doesn't necessarily mean that adoption is there. I think you run into a lot of the same challenges. And for us, I mean, I think what really, you know, enthralled us about the culture and community behind it was if you think about these farmers, it's again, the bottom line is it's still very important across the business. But in Norway, for example, the industry's only been around for 30 to 40 years. It was started by farmers, land farmers, who were given the government said, Here, why don't you guys try some fish farming, put some nets out, put some cages off a dock, and see if you can keep these animals alive. It's grown to what I kind of previously described, but a lot of those kind of roots as as, as kind of an older industry, you know, smallholder farmers, that's really how this how this business came to be. So for us, I mean, I think it's a similar challenge of, of, of gaining trust. We showed up on the shores, you know, they've been trying to solve disease problems for 30 years. And mm. we came in as a couple Americans, you know, straight out of college and said, Hey, we can, we can, we think we can help. Um, so it's taken some time. And a lot of the same things Dan mentioned are the same things that we've had to do. Well, kudos to you both for sticking with it. Wow.
0: And Tony, I mean, how has it been, you know, cause obviously you're looking at huge swathes of data. I mean, how have you gone about collecting all this data from sort of governments and research labs? How
2: do you even get in there and how do you start that process? Yeah, I mean, so my co-founder, John, and I, we both came from the government space in the US. And one thing that, you know, working in that environment has taught us is how to pull data out of really, really bad sources. So, you know, the entire US government runs off Excel sheets and software that was built in the 80s. So we've had a lot of experience integrating with a lot of legacy systems. And that has honestly helped us a ton in this particular field as well. So we're integrating with the systems that are in place. What we recognized was just the wealth of data was there. You needed to clean it, you needed to capture it, you can find it in PDF formats. All of these kind of weird data sources you can weave together and that's what our experience has been. Again, we kind of recognize that salmon had all this data available. It was just sitting in different silos. So what we've worked a lot on is being able to extract that. So that's governmental records, satellite imagery, what's coming off the farms, what's coming off of sensors. You know, any sort of data source we can find that that will impact the models that we're building.
0: Amazing, love it, love it, great work, Dan. So let's just talk a little bit about bycatch. So you know, you mentioned before about a fifth of the world's population relies on fish as their main source of protein. But I think as well, a fifth of fish caught is actually then caught as bycatch. Is that right? So it's effectively cancelling itself out.
1: Those stats are pretty, yeah, they're, they're sort of familiar in the space. I think they're probably right. Yeah. Um, or close to it.
0: Yeah. So if that's the case then, so what's going to happen if we kind of continue to fish like that? I mean, it sounds like a maybe an obvious question but if we just carry on this way without adopting all of this great tech what happens
1: so it's interesting so i think right it, it becomes a bit of a mental math thing and i'm not like obfuscating here i'm not trying to dodge the question it's it's just this is one of the reasons i'm still in the space. It's, it's it's fascinating if you take different lenses on the problem right so a fifth of the world's population relies on fish to eat but 95 percent of the fishing fleet in the world is one person small-scale fishing vessels right so like right. We talk about millions of people fishing, but like 95% of those are tiny vessels fishing for subsistence off coastal states, right, to feed the families or maybe some market stuff. They are largely the people who rely on that as a primary protein, like clearly in, as outlined by things like Seaspiracy, regardless of its so the message there was true. If you're in a Western country or if you're in a more de- economically developed country where you have the option to stop eating fish or other proteins, then it, it's a viable choice, right, but it's not for everyone. If we keep fishing the way we are, there's two major issues here. One is biodiversity. So biodiversity enables resilience in any ecosystem. If you have lots of different things, they can survive viruses, they can survive lots and they can adapt. But if you remove like a large proportion of the biodiversity, firstly, food chains start to collapse. And secondly, one virus can wipe out an entire population in an ocean space because everything is the same. So that's a problem. So we need to retain that biodiversity by avoiding capturing endangered species or species with small amounts of stocks that are important to those food chains. And you can broad brush it and say that all species are important, otherwise they wouldn't kind of be there. The other side of things is is really around the management side of things. If we keep catching too much fish, regardless of size, shape, species, eventually they run out, right? Because the abundance isn't there, the biomass isn't there to replenish the stocks for the next year. Um, You're not getting the juveniles to go out there. So, that can happen a number of ways. Two of the main ones are you're just catching too much of everything. And yeah. like in Canada, we saw that with the cod collapse that happened because it was too much being caught. It went from like you could walk on the sea on the backs of fish was the story. And then there were none. And the other side of things is you just catch juvenile fish, which means that you're wiping out the next range of, you know, the next generation of fish. They can't go and grow and populate. So you've killed it before you've had a chance for it to grow. So those are the major ways it's going to happen. So. Biodiversity is stopped with selectivity, is is retained through selectivity. Stopping overfishing is stopped through better management and reducing illegal and unreported fishing by people who aren't reporting their catches, so you can't even model it.
0: Yeah.
1: And they're both done better through better management, frankly, like understanding what we have, what we can take and whether we are, basically.
2: I was curious to ask, I mean, I think it's fascinating to hear that, you know, 95% of kind of global fishing is from small holders. Do you see that number changing as kind of moving forward? Because I assume your technology is a little bit more targeted towards commercial fishing when they're targeting specific stocks. If you're a small holder, you'll take whatever comes in essentially if 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 that's the the kind of desire. How do you see that changing? Is it more you're saying management as well. So in which direction do you see it really going in the future?
0: Yeah,
1: great question. And and this is a massive speed bump in the rate to progress, right? So mm-hmm. it's all around incentives. So like we go to small fishing countries and we're like, hey, we want to protect turtles, which means you can't fish because you're catching turtles alongside your food. And they're like, but I need to eat. People are coming in from outside these ecosystems and saying we want to protect a very specific thing. The rest of the stuff, like what is bycatch to anyone? Like if it's a fish and I can eat it, that's food. It's not bycatch to me, it's a fish. So it's all about like aligning incentives. And You're absolutely right. We work predominantly with larger industrialized fishing vessels. We have some projects, which we're starting off now, which are working with artisanal fisheries. But the first thing we need to crack is actually the socioeconomic side of things. Like, how do we align those incentives? Because we could build cheap, affordable technology that could be put out at scale. But if no one sees the point in doing it, it never achieves its goal, right? So that for us is the biggest nut we have to crack in the first instance, for sure.
0: That's interesting. I mean, you, you start to talk about incentives and I guess we're it'd be useful to think about responsibility here in terms of, you know, sustainability. So, you know, we know it's not just down to fishermen and fish farmers to, to lead the way on this. So I guess I'm interested to understand who else needs to be involved in this. So let why don't we talk about consumers, you know, so how do we need to impact consumer attitudes? So, you know, Tony, from your side do you ever get any pushback from consumers or, you know, through the people you're speaking to about fish farming, you know, the the programs like Sea Spiracy, has that had an impact? And if so, what more do we need to do there to kind of convince people that this is sustainable?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think those are Those are pushbacks that you always hear. I mean, when I speak to people about the work that we do, a lot, I, I get two sides. One is, oh, you guys are just doing factory farming. Like that's what's going on within the oceans. I don't support that. I only eat wild salmon, for example. I think that's a very... I don't know, a top level view of what's happening in the industry. The way that we view it is when you're looking at the sustainability of the industry, you have to really look at it from a much broader picture compared to other protein production sources. I think Dan's mentioned quite a bit on just the scale of seafood and its impact on the world and its. Even if there's small pockets, like I think Seaspiracy said it correctly, you know you have the option to not eat seafood, but that's not necessarily the case for a lot of the world. Mm-hmm. And the only way to get better and make these improvements is if we have better management, if we have better data collection, and if we're able to make smarter decisions. So, from the consumer side, I think there's always a need to have better transparency behind what you're eating and being more educated on the product that you're putting on your plates, and then it's up to the industry to be able to tell that chain and, and story. I mean, from our standpoint, farm salmon is probably one of the most traceable kind of seafood sources, if not of all food sources, just because of the amount of data that's collected. Now, it's not necessarily that story's told very well, as far as you know where all these animals come from, well, how it's being raised, but the data's there from our perspective. There's more that's generated than you've seen, and I think it's up to consumers to be able to kind of pressure companies to chase down what's really happening.
1: I feel like the consumers get a bad rap, right? I think we continually get told that you're not trying hard enough to change your politicians' point of view or the industry's point of view. Vote with your wallet, vote with your feet. And you know what? I'm like, expletive deletive, no. Like I feel like I feel like we're all working really bloody hard to do stuff. I mean, not everyone, but like a lot of people. And then we get it pushed onto us that like this isn't changing because you're not trying hard enough. No, like mm. make it financially non-profitable. For an industry to function in bad ways, like there are things that can be done to speed that process up. And it shouldn't come from me not buying like wild Alaskan caught salmon. Like if I don't believe it to be traceable, like of course we know technologies are coming in to make that traceable, like in wild capture and in aquaculture. Like Tony, absolutely. I'm sure you can track fish to plate in aquaculture by now. But I just don't agree. I don't think it should be entirely down to the consumer. Like someone needs to make a start on this more
0: proactively who has the ability to make... significant scale change and yeah yeah so natural next question then dan so who is that then is this a is this a regulatory legislative level that this needs to come at and you know who's in charge of making this change at a scale big enough
1: it's tough right
0: like it's tough because
1: who has the most to gain when longer term thinking becomes a thing Right. Short-term thinking says I take all the fish out of the sea, I make my profit, I go on to the next thing. It's the mm-hmm. you know slash and burn approach, whatever. Like my, I've made my money, I go and may I be able to move to a different resource or whatever. But I think the longer-term thinking like social enterprise, sustainable business makes sense, right? You're looking to maintain a business for 100 years, not 10. And mm-hmm. businesses need to be thinking more in that way and incentivized to do so. And if that's in place as a context, then like, it just makes good business sense and that's where we need to get to because then it's like a no-brainer you're like well of course i'm going to do this to protect my interests at the moment it's not aligned and so like business i think can be taking a stronger lead on this like we work with several large fishing companies that are taking a stronger lead on this like and it's great to see that progress but they're doing it because they've decided that it makes sense for them they're not really pressured into it that much like if you look at the fishery bill in the uk like the amount of deleted text that had the word sustainability in it the night before it was passed is crazy. And like, a large part of Brexit was predicated on us taking back control of our waters to be more sustainable. And then the night before it goes through, a bunch of stuff gets removed. So like, it doesn't feel like the context is there to make this happen. And it's not going to happen organically because we only live so long as humans, right? Sorry if this is all coming off as a bit preachy. I don't have a direct answer for you. I feel like there are incentives for every member of the supply chain to start thinking in a more long-term way, but the context isn't there to pressure it into existence at the moment.
0: Yeah, that's useful. Got it. And and Tony, from your side, I mean, do you see the same thing or is, you know, what you're seeing in Norway is that kind of system and the pressure there? Is it different? Is it better?
2: You know, is there more support for what you're doing? I think... Norway definitely has more support for the aquaculture industry, but the motivation behind it is not necessarily, I think it's a lot driven by many different factors. I mean, for example, salmon is Norway's third largest export. It's one of their kind of bigger industries that they want to protect. They obviously have a lot of, of kind of buildup and, and history behind it. I mean, I think, Dan's point is correct, where there isn't one place that it will change. What we do see, however, is Norway does have a lot more effort from the policy side as far as being driven towards the industry, largely because of its export volume. This is why you can go there and people know the topics at mind. The same thing that we saw in the States with the Aqua Act, as far as aquaculture really getting stood up, there's just not enough interest to to look at it, so the pressures and, and Where change will happen, I think, is correct. It's a very hard question to answer. It doesn't come from just consumers. Mm -hmm. Everyone kind of plays a role. But I think being in this industry for so long, you kind of find out that... There's so much going on. There's so many different pieces. Everyone can play a small role in it. And sustainability is not everyone's top priority. But like Dan said, it's pretty much on everybody's list at some point. At the end of the day, a lot of companies, a lot of the industry is about, you know, how do we make enough money to move on to the next phase? And this is across the entire supply chain.
0: Okay. I mean, just, and I guess finally, just thinking about the other big players in this space, then, I mean, supermarkets, are they going to be, Really vital in terms of so we talk about trust and traceability for consumers, which I totally get. But so is it then going to be down to the sort of retailers in the middle to actually drive this change to make sure that you know the fish, uh, the aquaculture products they're receiving are fully traceable to give the consumers the confidence they need? Or who who influences them in this space? What do you think?
2: I think you have to view this problem or. or... What you're talking about has so many different levels to it. So, I mean, I think when you look at seafood, you have high quality products, high margin products down to very small, low margin. We're just eating this because this is the cheapest form of protein. And when you're talking about supermarkets, I think they're they're in the middle here because you see supermarkets that are only taking the most sustainably produced, they have very high standards, they're catering to a different segment of the consumer population than, you know, lower down grocery chains, Walmart and, and whatnot. And I think that's where again they play a role but they're all catering to a different segment of the population as far as their own businesses and i think that's something very important to keep in mind i don't think you can depend on the supermarkets to up the standards across the board i think there's certain of them that definitely have a much higher kind of responsibility as far as Mm -hmm. how their business model is set up but it's not a true answer but they play a role again it's I, i think they have a responsibility it's great for for them to push kind of the industry in a way because what we're seeing i think what i've seen in the industry is for example an ingredient supplier so even if you're just supplying protein to a fish feed company those companies are now starting to market across the entire supply chain they have cosmetic products they have products that go to consumers they have products that go to pets they have products across the entire supply chain that they're marketing to and i think that's a unique shift that you've never seen before so it's a Again, I I don't know if this is really answering the question, but those are the facts that I find super interesting as far as how the entire supply chain is really coming together as far as touching the different pieces. And, you know, nowadays, the same thing that we're feeding the fish you're seeing in pet food and that connects the world a lot more as far as knowing where products are coming from. Got it.
1: I think to Tony's point about multi-levels, like if you ever decide on an industry change or career change, if you never, ever want to be bored, get into fisheries. Um, (laughs) Honestly, like it changes, it changes slowly, but it changes dramatically. And you have every like economic, financial, political, like science, everything is there and humans, which is even better. But to your point, Tony, I think like if you you look at how fisheries are evolving, right? So I think the fish, these things called FIPS, right? Fisheries Improvement Programmes. I think the first one was actually invented or deployed by Walmart, right? As someone massive in the supply chain. Right. So they really coined this term and that's working with people like the MSC, the Machine Marine Stewardship Council. So they have like a data based like scoring system, which is being revised to accredit different fisheries around the world for sustainability, for like, so transparency, supply chain, all that stuff. Now, FIPS were designed as a result of fisheries being shut down because they weren't scoring high enough to sell their fish with the MSC label which allows you market entry. Some would argue a premium, but that's not for sure in in supermarket buying, right? So the supermarkets, actually in the UK, the supermarkets are all members of the UK FIP project, right? And they're all present on that board and they talk in a pre-competitive way about how to improve their fishery supply chain so that they can keep selling this fish at a decent cost. And they really have become the gatekeepers for selling fish at a large scale. And it's the same with the producers because they're part of that supply chain so they have to work harmoniously to make sure that they still have access to this resource because otherwise you know without the msc label there's markets that are close to you and you start to lose money so i think there has been some really interesting like economic engineering that's gone on to put these systems in place now okay yes the msc still collects some data on bits of paper that's changing it absolutely has to right particularly in the ocean space so the data gets lost things go wrong but The sort of the high level vision is there for like how you trace things from one place to another to suit a certain scoring criteria to mean you can sell it with a reasonable degree of trust. And that's how I think things are going to change because it does come back to an economic crunch right in the middle there, the fulcrum, the interface between the consumer who will or won't pay for this and the producer who's made it and wants to get to that consumer is the supermarkets. They're the ones buying at a scale significant enough that someone will take note when they say no you haven't met our criteria, we're not putting you on our shelves. So they're absolutely key to this because one consumer not buying something doesn't change a market. Tesco turning around and turning down an entire producer's output for a year, that's where you make a change. Or McDonald's saying that we're not gonna source our pollock from the Northwest US anymore. People listen. Or Mars for their pet food, like Tony was saying. So like these projects and like the MSC side of things are as data and infrastructure systems improve,
0: getting more effective. And that's my big hope anyway. So there's some good positive change coming in the industry, which is really good to see. Guys, this is a fascinating discussion. Thank you for that. We are actually coming close to the end, and there's a few things I'd like to talk about sort of looking forwards. So from both of you, I guess more, we t- I want to talk about the tech again. Can you give us a bit of a hint on any exciting new tech that you're working on or you know, bringing out to the market soon that you're allowed to talk to us about? Tony, anything that you're super excited about in your space?
2: Yeah, I mean I think for us it's increasing the transparency is of of various products. So one of the things that the industry that we find so exciting is it's very new. There's only been roughly 15 generations of fish that have ever been raised in salmon farming and this is pales in comparison when you look at poultry or cattle or anything where we have thousands of, of actual generations. And what's happened is, you know, in order to raise salmon it takes roughly 2 years from egg to harvest time. So these cycles take a long time to really iterate and experiment over products. Now what we see is when you're able to open up the data and really benchmark across industry wide kind of data sets, you're able to make these improvements a lot faster. Instead of having one farmer, you know, try something out at their farm that works one year, then they try something out next year, you're able to try things out at scale and get answers a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. For us, we're really excited about that and being able to launch benchmarking with various partners simply because of just how much iteration can happen in the industry as far as gain Knowledge building up, kind of the science research behind what is working and what's not. So that's what we're currently working on.
0: And um, are you looking to go global? You know, with
2: more just focusing on salmon, or are you going to be looking at the whole aquaculture space? Do you think our focus is salmon right now, but we are planning to expand into other species? Our particular data set is very valuable in kind of coastal ecosystems the most. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be the areas that that we look to grow to next. Amazing. And what about you, Dan? Any
0: special tech that you're working on? You said that you were building stuff in your workshop, so uh, you've obviously got something going on.
1: Yeah, it's been a joy to come to the workshop and see this stuff progressing. We're building uh, underwater camera systems and underwater sensors. Now, in aquaculture, clearly fairly ubiquitous now, but in wild capture, there's been a financial barrier to entry for a lot of people for this. And it means that you're not collecting the data in the coastal regions that Tony mentioned and beyond it, which can help you understand the ocean space better. So, the cameras, you can take a look inside your net for the first time, maybe in 40 years, and be like, oh, that's not working how I thought it was. Let's try something different. And then you can see if that works. And you've got you know, some data coming from that that we can use for management stuff and better conversations between scientists, fishermen and policymakers, which is super key for progress. Mm -hmm. And on the sensor side of things, it's measuring ocean variables like environmental data. So like temperature, salinity, light levels, that kind of stuff to see what might be affecting fish presence and fish behavior in certain areas. Because building up this sort of digital twin of the of the ocean model to allow you to really start putting these different factors in. So remote sensing data to do with weather, looking at what's going on under the water, a bit like an underwater weather report. Like what was going on when I caught these fish? What might be going on in the future? And why might they move? So you can start to get a bit more insightful with the planning and maybe completely avoid the bycatch issue by not sending a vessel to a place where you know there's a high likelihood that a particular species will be. So that's very blue sky or blue ocean, I guess. Blue ocean. And we're, we're like, yeah. It's, it's early days and we're starting to draw some insights and there's this growing body of people collecting ocean data to make it easier. So that's really, really exciting. But the camera's the next thing out at the end of this year. Fishermen seem to really want it. We're excited to provide this like high performing piece of kit that does what they want. And yeah, I'm really, really up for seeing that out there.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I'd love to see that. And also underwater weather report. Amazing. I could also imagine that there's a lot of people out there who would just love to be able to see if you could like stream you know, a camera from inside a fishing net so people can actually see what's going on in there. I think just normal people would love that. So, you know, bit of a tip there, Dan, just a side industry for you. Um, what, What would you like to see, if there was like one big change that you wanted from the industry to make your lives easier, but also to make, you know, this whole space better, what would you really like to see change to kind of accelerate what you're doing? It's a big question. Always a bit of a tough one, but is there anything that kind of jumps out? Uh, Tony, I can see you thinking, Dan, have you got something in mind?
1: I think I would align myself with a few other people. I would absolutely work to eradicate illegal fishing. The problem is we have an experimental setup in the oceans right now where we can, if we, through monitored sources, we know kind of what's coming out of it and we kind of know what's in there. But we have this whole area of ocean where we don't know what is being taken out of it by bad actors, if you like, or badly motivated actors. And without that missing piece of the puzzle, it becomes really hard to understand what sustainable means. And like, I mean, this is a huge Harry Potter moment with the wand. Like, I mean, like this is like removing incentive and everything. But if we could do that, we could start to have a better working understanding of how the ocean can be a, like sustainably fished because at the moment it's just too hard to know. There's too many variables. So that would be a
0: massive step forward, I think. Amazing. So no, no illegal fishing. Love it. Tony what do you think are you still cogitating
2: i think if you went to any aquaculture conference it's it would be on the regulatory side and mm-hmm. and being able to being able to scale in an efficient manner i think that's the issue that the industry has not found a way to solve. So countries are, many are trying, but nobody has a very concrete plan as to how the industry can scale. So in the States, for example, there's trials that go on. It takes you three years to get a trial, but there's no plan for what happens after a trial. So there is no plan to help this industry scale. What we do know is you look at the numbers, the production's going to have to increase, but the policy side is really holding it back, particularly in the Western countries right now.
0: Got it. Amazing. Thank you both. Difficult question, but always interesting to hear people's responses. So, I mean, this has been an amazing discussion. You know, we could talk about this for a very long time, I'm sure. And, you know, really want to have other episodes where we talk about aquaculture more broadly. So thank you both so much for today. So where can listeners go to find out more information about what you do?
2: Tony? Yeah, they can just go to our website, manolinaqua.com and reach out from there. Fantastic. Thank you. And Dan? I wish ours was as easy
1: to pronounce. It's S-N-Tech, so S N T E C H dot U K, And we've got all
0: our products and what we're doing on there. Great stuff. Thanks, guys. We'll make sure to add all the links into the recordings as well online. So big thank you to Tony and Dan. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. This has been the Food Fight podcast. As ever, if you'd like to find out more, head over to the EIT Food website at eitfood.eu and please also join the conversation by the hashtag EIT Food Fight on our Twitter channel at EIT Food. And don't forget to hit that follow button so you never miss an episode. That's it for now. See you all next time.